0: Good morning, church. Would you please take your copy of God's Word, turn again to the book of Luke, chapter 6. This morning we make a bit of a transition in the text, and I'll go into that a little bit here in just a moment, but we find ourselves in verse 12 of chapter 6. We'll go all the way through the end of that pericope or paragraph, verse 19. And as I read now, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened that at this time, he went off to the mountain to pray. And he, that is Jesus, was spending the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, And Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. There was a large crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the crowd was trying to touch Him. For power was coming out from Him and healing them all. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we do each week, I'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we begin. Father, we come as people who are in need of the nourishment that only comes from your word. And as we do each week, we ask for your blessings on this. This is a meal for our spirits. And so we pray that you would feed us well from your word, that it would challenge us, equip us, bring us to repentance, bring those in darkness to the light, and that Jesus would be glorified above all others in this moment. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, the big news, or some of the big news, over the last two weeks, in Tennessee anyway, has been Snowmageddon 2024. You know, we prayed for snow, and God did exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or hope or thought or some of you even wanted him to do. You know, when I was a kid, I used to chuckle when the meteorologists would talk about flurries in the forecast. Not just because it rarely ever materialized, you were hoping for those days out of school, but because when they did make those predictions... People got a little weird about it in Knoxville. Thinking that the storm of the century was gonna come. Any of you who are around in 93 know what I'm talking about. Gas stations lined up with cars, Kroger's busier than a toy store on a Black Friday in the 90s. To be, to be quite fair, the the storm sometimes did come, as it did two weeks ago. And Those who were prepared for the storm look a lot less like scaremongers in that moment and a lot more like the sensible sages that they probably are. And in our story, in the text this morning, the storm of opposition to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, has been growing. Now for several chapters in Luke, Jesus is not a fool. He will not be caught off guard by these things. He can read the signs, he can prepare for the blizzard of enemies and heresies and cruelties and miseries that his budding new covenant community will soon have to face. And in this morning's text, the Messiah begins prepping for the day when his new humanity will have to survive and also thrive in his absence. Have you considered preparing for your hard times as Jesus did for his We'll look in verse 12 at how the Lord prepared in prayer. And then in verses 13 to 16, how He prepared His replacements. And finally, in 17 through 19, we'll just briefly look at how He prepared for His upcoming teaching. The most powerful message that we will spend several weeks on, even into the end of March. Well, let's look now at verse 12 and Jesus' preparations in prayer. The passage this morning begins with a a brief but remarkably profound transition verse which connects the previous five skirmishes with the Pharisees to the choosing of the twelve apostles. Depending on who you ask, the earthly ministry of the Son of Man is at an all-time high. It's at its peak. Jesus is popular everywhere. People are coming from all over to see Him and be healed of their diseases. Not according to the religious leaders, though. They think that this guy is a little nuts. He's going off the rails on a crazy train, as someone once said. Now, it happened at this time. It happened in the midst of those events. That he went off to the mountain to pray. And he was spending the entire night in prayer to God. It might not have been the same day that that man's withered hand was healed in the synagogue. Luke lets us know, though, that it was not long after that event that Jesus went away and found seclusion from civilization. He went to have communion with the Father. There were some very important events about to take place for which he needed to meet with the Father. Luke says that he went up on the mountain. The Greek text tooros has a direct object in front of the noun. This tells us that it was a known mountain, likely a regular meeting place for Jesus and his disciples. Luke doesn't tell us, though, which mountain it was. Some people suggest the Horns of Hatton, which is a pair of mountains near the Sea of Tiberias in northern Israel, but nobody knows for sure exactly which mountaintop this took place on any good student of the bible though will hear the significance of the mountain and begin thinking about mountain themes throughout the scriptures from cover to cover where does the bible say that god usually meets with his people it's on mountaintops noah on mount ararat abraham and isaac on the mountain of sacrifice Moses on multiple mountains, especially Sinai. Aaron, Eliezer, and all Israel establishing the covenant with God on the two separate mountains as they came into the promised land. David, when he went up on top of the mount of God to stop the destroying angel from killing all the people in Jerusalem. Elijah also went up on the mountain of God. Luke doesn't make this as obvious as Matthew does But Jesus is here depicted as a new Moses. He is communing with God on the mountaintop, seeking His guidance and wisdom. And if the typology were really intended in the Scriptures, if this was really going to fit the Moses pattern, Jesus's descent would be a return from the divine meeting place to the divisions of the people, and He would deliver teaching to His covenant community, which is... Of course, as you know, exactly what happens next. But before we get there, Luke mentions something that neither Matthew nor Mark even allude to in their Gospels. Jesus, when he was up on this mountaintop, had a dusk-to-dawn prayer vigil with the Father. The Son of God went from evening to morning without any sleep, in constant conversation with the first member of the Trinity, and Luke also lets us know that Jesus' prayer time was loaded with petitionary prayer. That's actually in the language. The Greek phrase prosuke to theu is meant to communicate the prayers of Jesus were actually being given to God. He spent all night in giving prayer to God is what is meant to be communicated there. He was appealing with a fervency. He was in constant pursuit of the will of the Father for what was about to take place next. And we're not told by Luke what he was praying about. We could make some guesses. Was he praying for his enemies? Comes to mind, he's just had five recent encounters with the Pharisees. And in his upcoming message, he's going to talk about praying for those who disparage you, Luke 6.28. Speaking of that message, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, depending on how you'll phrase it, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment, it's likely that he was praying about what he was getting ready to teach. It's hard to imagine that his petitions didn't include a request for favor from Yahweh and what he was about to go down the mountain and present to the people. But throughout all of church history, One thing has been very certain. One thing was on the lips and on the mind of our Savior as he prayed all night with the Father on the top of that mountain. And it's the very next event that takes place in the narrative. A decision that would be more important, perhaps, than any other decision that Jesus would have to make in his lifetime. And that is the choosing of his twelve apostles. As I just said, it's the very next event in the text in verse 13. And the early church followed this same pattern when they were establishing and promoting leaders in the church. From Acts 6, as early as the first deacons, and these, they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. There was prayer and then a commissioning to the diaconate ministry. From Acts 13, verses 2 to 3, "...while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And Paul and Barnabas later on, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed." even Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is said by Paul to have had his hands laid had the elders hands laid on him to commission him for the work and we know that with the laying on of hands was accompanied by prayer consider for just a moment church the priority that Jesus gave to seeking the father's help for this important decision how he prepared for whom he would choose to be his Apostles on earth, he who was from everlasting, in perfect communion with both the Father and the Spirit, having access to the eternal counsels of the Trinity from eternity past, he who had the same wisdom and insight as the other two persons, having been a part of the eternal plan of redemption, in which the discussion of selection of the apostles would certainly have come up at some point, He chose to give his earthly body no rest. Instead, he made fervent petition to the bar of heaven for at least a solid eight hours. Perhaps it was longer. Someone might be tempted to ask the question, why? Doesn't Jesus know all things? Would Jesus have been asking for wisdom from the Father when he's the perfect embodiment of wisdom? Did you really need help making this decision? The ins and outs of the unity of the members of the Trinity is something that our minds cannot comprehend. If you throw into that equation the fact that one of those members of the Trinity is not only fully God, but now fully man, we can oversimplify things in our minds. But if you do that, you will usually end up in a place of a oneness heresy where uh, it doesn't make sense to have three persons. They're just, it's just God. It's just who it is. Or you can destroy the personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and turn them into divine robotics, automata. You, know, it, you just consider, well, God has to do this when people do this, and God's already planned to do this, so it's just like they're robotics. There's, there's no thought that goes into it. There's no personality in the members of the Trinity. But nothing mechanical happened on the mountain that night when Christ stayed awake and prayed. There was a real, personal, alive, even vital connection going on with the Father in that moment. We are certainly called to imitate that same pursuit of God in our own lives. Jesus did nothing apart from the guidance and direction of his Father. While being fully God... The fully human Christ was acting in absolute submission to the direction of the Father all the time. Here, He is our perfect example. Nothing is too small or too heavy to bring before the Father. The twelve men who would replace Him would be His representatives on earth or even a request for some midwinter snow. Nothing is too small or too great. But there's something else here that we're meant to see. I want to bring attention to this. When the Son of Man took on flesh, when He was made like unto us in every way, less sin, and when He spent an entire night requesting guidance for the election of the future leaders of the new world-conquering church, He was also, in addition to communing with His Father, loving His earthly bride. Who was going to take this gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the four winds and gather in this fiance for the son? These 12 men. Who was going to stand up to the opposition of the Jewish elites and the Roman authorities on that bride's behalf? These men. Who was going to continue the teaching and the preaching message of the Messiah to that bride, washing her in the water of the word, transmitting the word to scribe and parchment by the unction of the Holy Spirit, free from blemish, to be passed down for almost 2,000 years for the sake of the bride's sanctification? These 12 men. Who would protect her and preserve her while Jesus was on his throne in heaven and fight the early heresies and discipline the wolves out of the flock for the sake of the bride, these 12 men, who would give their blood in defense of the early church, loving not their lives even unto death, these men. Beloved, it is not an overstatement to say that America exists today And freedom and prosperity has spread to the extent that it has across the world and the gospel is moving into the final unreached territories and the bride is still marching forward in triumphant beauty to the heavenly Jerusalem because the son pleaded to the father for the right men for the job. And the father answered the son's prayer and gave him the right men. Have you thought about preparing for potentially challenging times the way that Jesus did? I'm not asking if you're a prepper. Some of y'all are pretty serious about the prepper stuff. You got your food stash, you got your weapons cache, you're ready for your bug out dash. See what I did there? Look, there's nothing wrong with having a plan for the worst. How are you going to stay safe? How are you going to feed your family? Those are things that men especially, who are caretakers of their family, should consider. You want to know what's absolutely embarrassing about the prepper movement? What's absolutely embarrassing when Christians get way down that rabbit hole, get black-pilled in this, and it's an embarrassment to the kingdom of God? It's that shrewd Christian who stays up all night Getting two years worth of oats and oxygen absorbers stuffed into mylar bags, and never once stopped to seek the favor of the Lord in prayer. Amen. Yeah. How much time have you spent prepping, church? How much time do you spend praying about how you're preparing? Are you pleading? Are you asking the Father for both wisdom and balance for how to do this? For a plan that gets you ready but keeps you fighting now while we're supposed to be fighting. When the Son of Man, will He come back and find people prepping for doomsday? Or will He find them being faithful on the earth? What about preparing for the good works that God called you to do today? That you're to walk in them? Are you concerned about those? Or are you concerned about what to do when Walmart doesn't have groceries? What about the future? Not your plan to head for the hills for escape, but what about the future of your children and your grandchildren and who's going to lead the church that they attend? Are you praying about that? Who's going to advance the charge to victory for the next two generations in Anderson County? Are you pleading with God for those men to be given to us now to secure the future if or when we will need to rebuild after this country looks different? Wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and certainly that includes asking, Father, would you give my children and my grandchildren the men of God who will lead this church? It's a, what's on the mind of Jesus right now? What's he thinking about? Who's going to lead my bride? Who's going to protect her? Who's going to preserve her while I'm gone? I want to encourage you, Christ the King families, get your family together and start preparing like Jesus. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. When's the last time you prayed for enemies? I'm not talking about amorphous, nameless groups of enemies. Lord, bless the Taliban. Lord, bless the atheists. Lord, bless those ignorant postmillennialists. Do you have, first of all, let's ask the question do you have enemies? Jesus certainly did, and he promised each of us that we would as well. He said to his disciples, if they've called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Can you name your enemies? Can you name people who hate you for what you stand for, for Jesus? Are you obsessed with the coming collapse rather than letting your light shine before men? Where are you not living your faith openly right now? Repent there and get out and proclaim Christ and make some enemies and then pray for them. Jesus also gives us the example we should pray about our words. We should pray about the things that we're going to say, not just teaching moments, preaching moments, instruction with children. We can pray about everything that we say. Do you seek God for favor and success regarding your evangelism opportunities? or for how you present the gospel to that co-worker or family member, or even wisdom for discernment in fellowship meal conversations. When you go out of this room in just a minute, you sit down with a plate of food, Lord, what can I say that will encourage the, mo- the other members of this church? What about the hard words of admonishment that are needed in your home or the other members of CTK? They need a hard word from somebody, and you know God's calling you to give that hard word. Are you praying about it? Or in the discipline conversations you have with your children as you administer correction for their sin. What about better bedtime conversations with your spouse for tactful ways to pursue romance and intimacy other than, I've been meditating on Proverbs 5.19 today. I think we should think about that together right now. Nobody really got that, but oh well. How seldom we think about and pray about our words Spurgeon used to ascend the platform each Sunday, praying silently in his heart, I need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. Help me, Holy Spirit. Speak to God about how you will speak to others, beloved. And also, of course, Jesus gives us the example here of praying for our future leaders. The decision of who would hold each of the twelve offices of apostle was without question one of the most important of Jesus' lifetime. Are you regularly praying for the future leaders of this church and our hoped-for church plants? Calvin said this, and I thought it's worth sharing in full. It's a long quote, but it's a good one. Now, Christ's example ought to be regarded by us as a perpetual rule to begin with prayer when we are about to choose pastors to churches. Otherwise, what we attempt will not succeed well. We are deficient in prudence and skill, and though our sagacity were of the highest order, nothing is more easy than to be deceived in this matter. Granting that we were in no danger of making a mistake, Calvin says, if the Lord does not regulate our affections, with what force or rather violence shall we be carried away by favor or prepossession or hatred or ambition? How one-sided we can be in these decisions unless, Calvin says, we take it first to the Lord in prayer. The elders and the deacons met a couple of weeks ago to talk about the physical needs of our church. At one point, the question came up about a timeline for church planning so the deacons could begin thinking about how to prepare financially or space concerns for church plants. And as elders, we don't have anything definite at this point, but we do hope to see a church plant in the next two to three years, five years at the most... One thing we're waiting for and praying for, though, right now is for future leaders, especially men who are gifted to preach and teach and can devote each week the time that's necessary to prepare for the proclamation of God's word before a congregation. We ask you, church, would you pray with us? Don't feel that the multiplication of this fellowship is something that you should fear. Rather, long for the fullness of joy that many churches cooperating together in Anderson County through the right teaching and preaching of the Word of God can bring to our fellow citizens and also our future generations. It's necessary, it has to happen. We have to grow and we have to spread this gospel, not just inside these four walls, but everywhere through our church planning efforts. If you think there will always be food at Walmart, you are naive. 2020 should have taught us just how fragile our infrastructure can in fact be. You can get prepared, but be warned, Christ the King. It can quickly become, prepperism, prepping, can quickly become a fear-producing machine. It can become a religion for some people. And it leaves out the fact that Jesus prepared in altogether different ways than we think to prepare. He prepared like he was going to win in the end. And at the very least, we should be praying like that. Let's look at how Jesus then prepared his replacements in verses 13 to 16. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. After the night of petition and communion with God, Jesus made an important choice calling all of his disciples together, an estimated 70 or more. He chooses 12 to be his apostles. First, I want you to notice the word chose in the Legacy Standard Bible, verse 13. It's the Greek word eklakamonos. It's a strong word. It means elected, singled out of many. This was, Luke is intending to communicate to us, a conscious and calculated choice by the Lord Jesus Each one of these men was taken for God's own purposes, a life of hardship, testifying to the word of Christ. Here, Jesus doesn't show us a picture of Moses. He actually shows us a picture of David, a new and better David. He's the wilderness king who seeks out his mighty men to go to war with him against those who are in opposition to his kingdom. Jesus's gang of warriors had their own moniker, the Twelve Apostles. The word apostolos originally wasn't a titular word. That means it wasn't used at a, as a title. It simply meant somebody who's a delegate, a messenger, or one who is sent with orders. But that's not the way that we think of an apostle today. Capital A Apostle has a much higher meaning in our minds, and rightfully so. When did it become an official title? When did that word put on all the extra weight and meaning that we carry with it today? Today. The early church understood Jesus' selection here as more than just enlisting mail carriers. These men that he chose became the official representatives of Jesus on earth. Sounds strong when I say it that way, but let me explain. Just after the naming of the twelve in Matthew's gospel, prior to sending them out for the first time, Jesus says these words, He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Consider that. If they receive you, they receive me. If they receive me, they receive the Father. To accept an apostle and submit to his teaching is obedience to Jesus. Here's an area where the Mishnah isn't that far off base. The rabbis had a saying the one who is sent by the man is the man himself. That's the level of authority that was given to an apostle or this messenger. Interesting fact, who was the first apostle? It wasn't Peter, and it wasn't James, it wasn't John, it wasn't Andrew, it wasn't any of the 12. The first apostle was Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews states, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now I bring this up, it's important for one reason. Jesus is not the Father. The Bible is clear about that. There are two persons, two separate persons in the Trinity, a total of three, but of course between Jesus and the Father. Two separate persons. But Jesus being sent by the Father as the Father's apostle, he represents the Father to the world. And likewise, when he enlists his future representatives of himself, they represent him to the world. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me, Jesus says. As Jesus represented the Father as his apostle, so these 12 men would represent the Lord to the world. Now you also know that the number 12 is highly symbolic in the Bible. It's used 189 times in the King James Version. The most notable outside of the apostles is the number of the tribes of Israel. These two instances together, when you just compare the two, they show a completeness and a foundation for a governance. The bride of Christ in Revelation also wore a crown of 12 stars. The New Jerusalem had 12 gates. Altars in the Old Testament were usually made with 12 stones. There were 12 spies sent into the Promised Land. There were 12 oxen holding up the Bronze Sea outside of the temple. In addition to the four major prophets, there are 12 minor prophets. Jesus was 12 years old when he was found in the Father's house, Luke chapter 2. And did you know, kids, that there are 12 names in the Bible that only contain two letters? It would be interesting to see if somebody can find those and list them all out. I read one commentator's postulation that the number 12 is, of course, 3 times 4. From that, he surmised that the apostles would take the Trinity to the four corners of the earth. What we ultimately are meant to see here is the birth of a new covenant patriarchy. The 12 patriarchs were the fathers of the old covenant Israel. The 12 apostles are the patriarchs of the new covenant Israel of God. This isn't replacement. This is fulfillment. There's type and anti-type. It was always God's intention that he would have a people, not just an ethnic family group, but peoples from all nations, from every wind of heaven. We read recently in our Bible reading plan that Jacob was told, your seed will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, we know who the seed was. It was Jesus And who are the people of God? All the nations who enter by Christ through faith. And these 12 men were to lead the mission after Jesus' departure. In verses 14 through 16, Luke lists their names, very familiar names. Simon, whom he also named Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, the traitor. I want you to notice just a few things in that listing. In all the synoptics, and there's a list of the apostles in Acts chapter 1, Peter always comes first and Judas always comes last. The first four names are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John, not always in that order. If you group the names in fours, the same lead names appear. Peter leads the first group of four, Philip leads the second group, and James, the son of Alphaeus, always leads the third group of four. There should be no question in our minds why Peter was always listed first. He's, of course, the spokesman of the group, albeit a kind of foot-in-mouth spokesman of the group. He receives the revelation of who Christ is, Matthew 16, 17, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and he leads the mission to the Jewish church in Acts. There's, of course, no question why Judas is always put last. He betrays the Lord. He was known for being a thief. He's the only apostle the Lord admitting to, admitted to having lost. And he committed suicide and is sent to the worst place in hell. It's interesting that Judas is chosen at all. I've spent a lot of time talking about how much preparation Jesus spent into his prayer For the twelve, after asking for that wisdom and discernment, someone might think, did Jesus get one of them wrong? Of course, we know that that's not the case. Peter rightly perceived by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, "...men and brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share." in this ministry. Augustine adds another devotional insight that I thought was helpful. Judas the traitor is chosen not unwittingly, but knowingly. For Christ has indeed taken to himself the weakness of man, and therefore refused not even this share of human infirmity. He was willing to be betrayed by his own apostle. That you, when betrayed by your friend, may more calmly bear your mistaken judgment, your kindness thrown away. Consider the following, beloved. Jesus' kingdom does not depend on the strength of this world. Jesus' kingdom does not depend on the strength of this world. Our Lord did not spend all night accepting resumes and conducting interviews. He wasn't interested in who would make him look good on his campaign trail. Based on those he chose, it would seem like he picked the worst candidates. Luke will later report in Acts that the apostles were uneducated, common men perceived by those around them. All the disciples, with the likely exception of Judas Iscariot, were Galileans. Most were lower to middle class. None of them came from the Jedi Academy and had nothing exceptional to commend them for a global conquest. None were Pharisees, none were Sadducees, none were priests, none were politicians, none were rabbis. God has selected for His purpose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, revealing the world's ignorance. And God has selected for His purpose the weak things in the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty, God has selected for His purpose the insignificant or base things of the world and the things that are despised and treated with contempt, even the things that are nothing, so that He might reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one may be able to boast in the presence of God. That's 1 Corinthians one 27 to 27-29 in the Amplified Bible. Jesus always intended to build His church, not by might nor by power, but by the Holy Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Ryle rightly asserts, With a doctrine most unpalatable to the natural heart, with nothing whatever to bribe or compel obedience, a few lowly Galileans shook the world and changed the face of the entire Roman Empire. One thing, and one thing only, Ryle says, can account for this. The gospel of Christ, which these men proclaimed, was the truth of God doesn't matter what your eschatology is. You can be so pre-mill that you won't eat post-toasties. If Jesus could take 12 knuckleheads, fill them with His Spirit, and through their ministry take His church into Caesar's palace and flip the emperor out of his chair, why is anyone concerned with where the church is right now? Why? The silliness and sinfulness that seems to be dominating the earth right now is God's perfect setup for His church to come out on top in the end. He can use a little church in Anderson County, Tennessee in ways beyond our imagination. And because the majority of us are misfits, when we win, Jesus gets all the glory. Beloved, we don't need this world's power to win this fight. Don't forsake the world, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, build tangible, lasting things, but depend on the power of the Spirit of Christ. Twelve men filled with His Spirit and proclaiming His gospel conquered the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Whoever wins the election in November will also, at their inauguration, be one breath away from the heart-stopping judgment of God, regardless of which candidate it is. And in either case, that could lead to the ascendancy of the new Christendom. The second thing that I want you to notice in this section is that Jesus' apostles carry the exact same authority as the Lord Jesus Himself. I say this because... Last week, I listened to a, about a four-minute clip of a man who said he was a pastor at a church called Mission Gathering Church. I don't know where they come up with these names. And he was fielding a question about differences between Jesus and Paul. You already know where this is going, don't you? He suggested to his audience that most Americans have been raised in Pauline churches rather than in Jesus churches. Jesus and Paul actually never met, he said. Say that again, but slowly. Emmaus? Paul often contradicts Jesus Jesus and Paul preached two different Gospels. Jesus' message was simple. Paul's was very complex. Paul told stories about Jesus. Jesus gave us a new way to live. I hate reading this stuff. Here's the kicker. You've been gaslit this far to get to this point. When he says, Jesus' message was social and ethical, Paul's was theological. Ah, there it is. And, your concluding application, if the two don't agree, well, the safe thing to do is side with Jesus, of course. The Bible has a word for that kind of talk. In Philippians, Paul calls it scubalon. And the nice way for me to say that to you is it's the excrement of animals. Brown Driver Briggs. There you go. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send, including the road to Emmaus, receives me, and he receives him who sent me. I showed that video to Tammy and our kids, and I asked them two questions. I said, How many human authors contributed to the writing of the Bible? And they didn't know exactly the number, but they all said many. There were many different writers of the books of the Bible. Then I asked the question, how many authors of Scripture are there? And everybody said, one. The Word of Christ in the Gospels, when you open your Bible, if you have one of those red letter editions, those words are not any more authoritative than the words of Romans. They're not. Because the words of Christ in the Gospels and the words in Romans are the words of Christ. I'll say it another way. The writings of Peter, James, John, Paul, all the other apostles, and the writers of the Old Testament are as authoritative as the teachings of Jesus. If you reject them, you reject the Lord Jesus as well. If we accept this asinine heresy about Jesus and his followers being at odds with each other, we will start losing. That's where we start losing the war. That's where we start retreating. That's where we run out and bug out and do all that silly nonsense cowardice stuff. We're sawing off the limb that we're sitting on, beloved. We're no better than the transgender who cuts off and mutilates their own genitals at that point. We'll become like the fruitless churches in our area whose candles Jesus put out a long, long time ago. So Jesus is prepared in prayer, He's prepared His 12 men, and then He prepares for teaching. Jesus came down with them, that's the 12 apostles. He stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed by their diseases healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the crowd was trying to touch him for power was coming out from him to heal them all Looking again at the mountain motif that I spoke of earlier we should expect that when someone descends from a mountain, after communing with God, something important is about to happen. These final three verses are a new scene setting for Luke. It's a transitional passage. It takes us from the choosing of the twelve to Jesus' kingdom instructions for his disciples. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to slow the preaching way down. And we're going to focus on individual verses and teachings from Jesus in what is often called, in Luke's version, the Sermon on the Plain. I want to save a fuller introduction of that from these verses that we're looking at right now, 17 through 19. I want to save that for next week, so we'll look more in-depth into these verses next Sunday. But notice what happens in the last paragraph here. People come from the north and the south, Tyre and Sidon, Judea, Jerusalem... They come to hear Jesus teach. They come to be healed by Jesus' touch. They come to be delivered of demons by Jesus' authority. Luke is paying special attention in these verses to the curative power of Jesus. The ability he has to mend people. And it was in his person at that time. They recognized that power was in him to heal. These people were coming... For what the Lord was giving. And Jesus didn't hesitate to give. He's assembling a community around him. With hearts ready to receive his words. But. That community is about to be faced. With words. That demand something of them. Words that come at a cost. As I close this morning. In preparation for next week. Consider church. Are you prepared for what Christ will demand of you for being his disciple? The Jesus we serve prayed for each of you whom he chose. He has all authority and expresses his power over us in answer to our prayers regularly. From the raising of the dead to various healings in our body, blessings for needed provisions, to a week or more of snow, all for our joy. He's gathered a community at Christ the King centered around devotion to His Word and the right administration of the sacraments where the fellowship of the saints receives the long-lost attention that it is due. Where men are called to be men, women are called to be women. Where the roles of the two genders flow from their created natures. He's granting families release from generational sins, freedom from heretical oversimplification of the gospel only, The feminization of the church These and many more are all Christ's gift to us The unity and the joy of heaven are breaking into lives In this fellowship in Anderson County, Tennessee But remember, beloved, the Christ who gives also makes demands on us He who releases also requires He who said, come to me, all you who are weary Also said, deny yourself, take up your cross and come follow me Jesus descends this mountain with his disciples. The crowds come for what they can get. They're enjoying the blessings of this new and fruitful garden. But are they ready to be called to be laborers in that garden? To work it, to tend it. Jesus is about to reveal that true discipleship, the kind that goes with those who get to heaven, that kind of discipleship, comes at a high price. Are there men here who play the machismo card in public, but in private they still refuse to repent of apathy towards Christ-like leadership in their home and doing what it takes to get a passive-aggressive wife and willful children under control? Jesus says in Luke 6.26, Woe to you men, when all men speak well of you. Are there women here who have the appearance of godliness and submissiveness but are also pretty good at manipulating their husband into leading like she likes? Jesus says in Luke 6.43, There is no good tree that bears bad fruit. Are there boys here whose aim is to appear as men? But their braggadocious chick chat talk and infantile hobbies gobble up their zeal for love and hard good works which God prepared for them before the foundation of the world. Jesus says in Luke 6.45, His mouth speaks from the abundance of His heart. Are there young women here who have an appearance of godliness and a gentle and quiet spirit, but inwardly they have bitterness and strife towards blood-bought sisters who seem to have more than they do. Jesus says in Luke 6, 38, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. True discipleship, beloved, is costly. It is costly. If you are elected and appointed and precious to the Lord and you benefit from His miracles and ministry, at some point He will make you submit to His teaching. That new covenant community ethic will burn at your sin. And it will consume your sin. And praise God it does so. So it goes with sons and daughters of the kingdom. If it does not, if you resist, you will prove to be no son or daughter at all. So church, repent. Start today. Repent. As John the Baptist called out to prepare people for the ministry of Jesus, repent and prepare for this good news that is coming to you. Prepare through repentance to receive the commands of Christ that Christ may be Lord of all and first in our hearts. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. For the behavior, the attitude, the actions, all the example of your son that we see in the scripture. We thank you that though we wander, often wondering aimlessly what we're to do with our lives, Jesus gives us the perfect example. He tells us how to prepare for hard times. He gets us ready for the battle that he has called each of us in our days to face. But Lord, if we have not counted the high cost that it will take to follow Jesus to the end, even to the death, would you convict us of where we are now, hiding sin, so that it might be repented of and we might be prepared for the high cost that following Jesus might call us to. And give us joy now as we go in fellowship and eat As we take communion and we sing this afternoon, may everything that we do, all of our lives, be to the glory of King Jesus and to his kingdom. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.